Hey, hey, water coolians. Welcome back to the show. Welcome back to another new episode. And welcome back to an episode your brain is going to love because, well, <laughs> we're talking about the brain. I think our brains do have a bit of an ego. You know, let's be honest here. It technically did name itself and it did go the route of Prince and Beyonce in its naming. So <laughs> just saying. But today we are joined by Dr. Mark Williams, who has taught and continues to teach the fundamentals of neuroscience and everything to know about maintaining a healthy brain to talk about what it means to fub a friend. Uh, sounds a bit interesting out of context, so you have to listen to the entire episode for the context, and the importance of friendship on the development and health of our brains, whether that be a childhood friend, friends you meet along the way, or a swan you happen to come across on a walk with mates. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to episode 85 of Water Cooler Talk podcast titled Foul Friendship with Dr. Mark Williams. Enjoy! Uh, not so fast, gang. Water Cooler Talk, in accordance with the good doctor, will be taking a bit of a digital detox for the end of summer here in the U.S., so we will be back with a new episode September 19th. All right, now you can enjoy our conversation with Dr. Mark Williams. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world, and while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not, because they're real. Uh, lore and mythology obviously play an important role in human history, but for one town, uh, the small town of, let's say, Mystic Falls, it, it plays quite a large role in the Vampire Diaries. Have you had that conversation with your daughter about what you would choose to be if given the chance, you know, between the werewolf, the the vampire, the witch? Like, do you have an inclination to what you would want to be? <laughs> yeah, we do. My daughter wants to be a witch because she finds that fascinating having control over other people which i understand is a, a teenage girl wanting to control <laughs> other people especially their parents um uh, yeah i i flip back back and forth between um i'd like to be a werewolf if it wasn't painful to do the transition mm -hmm. but it's so painful the transition that i don't think i, I would like that but yeah I'd, I'd like to just once a month just go completely wild and, and um, then have no memories of what i actually did <laughs> I'm still, yeah, I, I used to do that when I was in my 20s and I still have that desire, but I don't have the recovery rate I used to have. So, um, yeah, I think that'd be nice. I, I don't like the the vampires. I, I wouldn't like that to rely on feeding on other people to live. Yeah, no, I know. Um, I watched the show What We Do in the Shadows, which I believe is uh, an Australian original sh kind of creation. The show actually originates from New Zealand. <laughs> Sorry, Australia. But the fact that, you know, the vampires can't eat anything, they can't drink anything. It's like, I mean, I need to get, you know, the food intake in. So I, I think I'm right there with you with the werewolf. You know, one day a month where, you know, whatever happens, happens, Just I guess. Lose your, yeah. <laughs> to be right. All right, Mark. Well, are you ready to jump into our first story? Discuss the, uh, the concept of fubbing a little bit. Uh, yes. This is from Vice Tech, written by Gabby Bess and Zing Zhong, uh, July 27th, 2023. And this article was originally published in 2016. You probably don't know what fubbing is, but you do it constantly. Good news. There's now one simple term to describe the act of ignoring everyone you know and love in favor of your phone, which you probably love way more anyway. 
The bad news is that the word is fubbing, a silly-sounding combination of the words phone and snubbing. In 2016, researchers at the University of Kent analyzed how the antisocial phone behavior became widely accepted as the norm. Lead researcher Karen Douglas and her team surveyed a selection of 251 people aged 18 to 66 to find out why being an asshole was suddenly fine. Of the participants, every single one of the 251 reported that they have fubbed to some degree and, not surprisingly, the researchers found that internet addiction, the fear of missing out, and a sort of fubbing karma contributed to the phenomenon. Douglas states, People are constantly looking for information, and they can't put their phone down. When you fub someone, they're likely to fub you right back. This has more or less become an accepted way to communicate. It makes the behavior seem normal. The term fubbing, the act of ignoring someone in favor of staring at your phone like a dopamine-starved zombie, originated in Australia, so, you know, that's your people, Mark. Come on, man. Where it debuted in the 2008 McCary Dictionary, but has yet to see widespread recognition despite its commonality. Douglas is currently working on expanding the literature of fubbing to include research on not just why people do it, but its impact on communication, which uh, doesn't seem to be so positive so far. She states, We're putting people in situations where they are being fubbed by an avatar and asking them how that makes them feel how they feel about the person they're communicating with, and the quality of the communication. It looks like fubbing does have an impact on how people feel. It makes them feel, well, pretty bad. But still, fubbers are going to fub. Um, I don't think I ever need to say that word again here, Mark. Uh, but in your recently released book, The Connected Species, you have a quote uh, about humans having a, quote, primitive drive to connect. Now, you know, modern day technology, including phones and social media, has given us the ability to connect in a way we've never seen before. In your opinion, what went wrong? Yeah. <laughs> There's multiple things that went wrong there. Um, <laughs> I think one of the big things is is that the phones are addictive. So we're actually all getting becoming addictive to the phones. And so we're driven to actually answer the phones or we um, respond to the phones because we we have a, 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 our habits um, are set up by a trigger which then causes causes a behavior or a thought and then that's that's reinforced and that that's how these tech companies are capturing us so that the notifications the buzzes and the beeps and all those things that happen on the phones and the little moving icons they capture your attention which then gets you to actually respond to the phone and then we're reinforced for that because we see a picture or something that we like or whatever and that then um, increases the amount of dopamine in our brains which then reinforces that whole little loop mm -hmm. and we know that Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook has, has, has actually acknowledged that they use variable reinforcement schedules to actually increase the likelihood of you getting addicted to Facebook so they hold off on the likes they don't give you the likes when someone actually likes Facebook your, your Facebook, they hold off on them and give them to you when they know that it's going to optimize the amount of dopamine you get. So it optimizes your actual uh, likelihood of becoming addicted. And we assume the other social media apps and everything else do very similar things. And so they are causing you to become addicted. So we're addicted to it. So we can't actually stop ourselves from actually responding to that phone rather than responding to the person who's standing there in front of us. But we should be responding to the person who's standing there in front of us because we're upsetting that person. But we're not upsetting the person who liked whatever it is, right? People don't know when you actually look at their posts or look at their texts or look at their whatever mm. unless you're responding to it. So we really need to change it. We, we it's, it's a ridiculous situation at the moment that we put a bigger emphasis on, on people 
or tech companies, actually, that are notifying us that we've got a like or we've got a comment or we've got a whatever. And we're ignoring the person who's standing in front of us who is actually going to get upset by the fact that we're ignoring that person standing in front of us. And it's causing a lot of divide in society because people do get pissed off by it. It's not a nice thing to do. Um, and it, it's never been a, a, a nice thing to do. And so we really do need to stop doing it. And, and it's crazy that we've got a situation where we treat a phone, a device, as more important to us than a person standing in front of us. I mean, that's that's just nuts. I, I just don't get it. Um, and, and we've got to stop it. But it's been driven because, because there's some amazing, amazing behavioralists who work at these companies who are causing those addictions. And, and I think governments need to step in. Like, if you, if you think about it, back in the... When TVs first became popular, a lot of advertising companies started using subliminal advertising, which is flashing things up really quickly so you don't actually see them, but it changes behaviour. And the governments, within a couple of months, went, hang on, this is inappropriate because this is changing behaviour um, without the person actually knowing it, and they made it illegal very, very quickly. The algorithms and the, the methods they use on our phones to get us addicted and make huge amounts of money out of our attention um, are far worse than that and far more manipulative than that. But no government around the world is actually doing anything about it. And I don't understand that, why things have changed so much that our governments, governments aren't willing to intervene and stop the manipulation that's actually happening um, because it really is causing a divide and it's causing mental health issues. It's causing us all to get dumber. You know, there's huge, huge ramifications for what's actually happening and governments need to, to, to man up or woman up and actually do something about it because it, it's going to cause huge problems in the future. It's become such an interesting uh, situation because, you know, we had a previous episode with Beth Fossen where we talked about companies putting ads in your dreams and, you know, she specializes in marketing and advertisement and she said, it seems like that would be like the the prototypical way to get people's, you know, ads. And obviously we talk about the subconscious a little bit later here, but just to get ads into people's subconscious. But she was talking about how it's a lot easier with what, you know, these gigantic social media companies are doing with their algorithm. It's a lot easier to get that ad in your subconscious through social media and the algorithm than it is to actually implement this ad into your actual dreams while you're sleeping, you know, for a third of your life. But I kind of want to, you know, focus on this concept of this ridiculous concept of fubbing, we know it's not nice to do this. We know it's not nice to stare at your phone while you're talking to someone else, but we're still doing it. So it's like, what are we not connecting? Because we know this is not the right thing to do, but we're still doing it. It's like, I mean, I've done it. I don't know if you've done it, but just about everyone I know, I have had conversations with them when the phone might not be the main focus, but during that conversation, the phone does become a focus for one period of time. And you're just like, oh, am I boring you? But then on the same, you know, on the flip side, you also do that. And you're like, I know this is not the right thing to do, but I'm just doing it. Yeah, it, it is. It's addiction, right? It, it's because our um, working memory system is so limited. Most of what we actually do is simply habitual, right? It's just a habit. And a habit and an addiction is really the same thing. From a neurological point of view, from a brain point of view, a habit and addiction are, are the same. It's just an addiction is when it becomes an issue for you and how you actually are living. So it's just a more, more severe version of a habit. But habitually, we actually, most of what we do during the day, vast majority of what we do during the day is habitual. It's just habit-based. Because our working memory is so limited, that's our consciousness, 
that we can only do one thing at a time. And so everything else we're doing is automatic. And that's what they're tapping into. They're tapping into this habitual behavior and they're creating cues such as um, the notifications, which means that as soon as you get a buzz, everybody, as soon as they get a buzz, they attend to their phone. Their attention goes straight to their phone and away from the person who's in front of them. And so all of a sudden, they're no longer attending to that person and their working memory is on their phone. And so they want to know what it actually is. So they pull it out and actually look at it. And that's that's the link, right? And so all we have to do is just turn off all our notifications. And if you turn off your notifications, then you don't get the buzz. So therefore, the queue doesn't happen. So you don't then feel as though you've actually got to check it. So if we turn, if everybody turned off all their notifications and used it in the old school way, which is actually to use it as a phone where you talk on it. I, I talk to a lot of teenagers and they get surprised that you can actually talk on these things. Um, but you can actually answer them and talk on them. And so if you just have it ringing where there is another person at the other end actually wanting to talk to you, right? That's actually a real person then that works much better. And you just tell everybody, if you really need to get in touch with me, call me. And if you don't, then I'll check my other things. I'll check my texts and I'll check my at some stage, but you're not going to get a response straight away, which is the way I have my phone set up and everyone in my family and now most of my friends do as well, um, which means that you're not getting that automatic response because it is an automatic response to that cue is the notification Mm -hmm. and it's actually been shown if you turn off your notifications you improve your mental health within two weeks have you found i know you've talked about this concept of like the phantom vibrate where you know your phone can be in the pocket and then you feel like it's vibrating but it's not actually vibrating is that something that you know all right turning off the notifications two weeks time that's not happening or you know what is kind of the research that you found as far as like how long it does take to kind of get yourself out of that phone addiction? Or is it similar to other addictions? Because I know you've talked about uh, the similarities in gambling and intermediate reinforcement. That's right. Yeah. So the phantom buzz stuff is really interesting because now now there's a lot of research showing up to 90% of teenagers now get phantom buzz syndrome. And there's some researchers who have taken groups of college students in the US out into the Arizona desert where they had no reception. And after five days, 25% of those students were still getting these phantom buzzes on their legs. <laughs> and I was actually at a conference. It was sort of in the middle of COVID when things sort of opened up for a little while. Um, and there was a principal I was presenting to a whole bunch of school principals and and he had a a, a smartwatch and he said when he takes his smartwatch off at night, he has trouble sleeping because he gets phantom buzzes on his wrist. So it seems as though that's going to be the next one is is these phantom buzzes on your wrist because of the the smartphones. And he has a lot of trouble. He said he has a lot of trouble because it keeps waking him up because of the buzzes. So it is a physical addiction that these people uh, have to this uh, buzz and it does seem to be it's about two to three weeks it starts to decrease in the vast majority of people so about a week it'll start decreasing and then you'll get rid of it for most people within about two weeks which is corresponds to the increase in mental health as well right so you know better mental health outcomes after about two to three weeks as well if you get rid of these phantom um, if you get rid of sorry the notifications, I think there's always this connection to 
at least, you know, I've noticed it in my generations and kind of the younger generations, but, you know, this, this concept of the fear of missing out, you know, now that you're connected to the world, you're connected to all your friends, you're connected to every celebrity, every athlete, everything that you could ever imagine, you're connected in one little, you know, rectangular device. And so it's always, oh, did something happen? And something's obviously up, right, Mark? Something's always, always happening. And so, of course, there's something happening, but you always want to be a part of something something because, you know, as we've talked about in a lot of previous episodes, a lot of people, when they're posting on social media, it's highlights of their life. It's not going to be the boring moments. It's not going to be the sad moments. Sometimes it is the sad moments, but more often than not, it's the happy moments of your life, the highlights of your life. And so now you're constantly comparing and it's like, oh, I don't want to miss something because I don't want to miss the potential to share a highlight of my life. Yeah, but the problem is it's not, it's not, there's nothing social about social media. Um, and social media is advertising, and all you're doing is advertising. People are advertising their lives, right? But yep. they only put in on the good stuff or the really bad stuff. You don't see when they're, they're, you know, just walking around the house, cleaning the house or whatever, right? It's just advertising for people to make themselves look a bit better than they actually are, or worse than they are because they want help for something, which is, you know, fine. But we need to realize that it is advertising. It's either companies advertising or it's influencers advertising or it's people just advertising their lives. And so it's not actually social. And we're missing out on the real social interactions because those interactions online, you're getting that dopamine that we talked about, but you're not getting all the other neurotransmitters that you need. So you're getting an abnormal flush of neurotransmitters in your brain. So when you actually meet up with someone uh, who you actually connect with, what we first do when we meet up with someone in real life that we don't get online is we usually touch each other. So we have appropriate ways of touching in all societies, such as um, in you know more stoic societies like US and over here in Australia, we shake hands, mm-hmm. which is appropriate. In Europe, they'll kiss each other on the cheek. Even the Inuits will rub noses because it's only part of their skin that's actually showing. And the reason for that is we've got sea fibres in our skin and the sea fibres in our skin are only there for touch, and that's why we have C-fibers in our skin is for this touch, and that activates an area of our brain which releases oxytocin, and oxytocin is really important for us to connect, to actually feel connected to someone and to open up and feel as though we can actually interact and trust this person. You don't get that when you're online. You also, the body language, so when we're just looking at those feeds online, there's no information about the person's body language. Whereas when we're face-to-face, we have body language information that goes mm-hmm. on and we have a mirror neuron system that actually mirrors what the other person's doing. So if we were sitting next to each other or standing next to each other, we would mirror each other's behaviour so that we understand how each of us is feeling. So, you know, if one person slump, slumped over, the other person would also slump over, which would tell them, that that person is actually feeling a little depressed. I need to help them because they're feeling like this and so on. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, they're feeling... He's feeling pretty excited, so let's get excited and have some fun. None of that information and that serotonin which goes along with that and the endorphins that go along with that, none of that happens when we're online. Whether you're online like we are now or whether you're online on social media, you don't get any of that information. And then also eye gaze. So even if we're talking on Zoom or whatever it is, the eye gaze actually isn't correct because we're not actually looking at each other. And often you'll have several people (laughs) there who'll be looking. So I can look over here, for example, which none of you, or the audience know exactly what I'm looking at. But normally when we're face-to-face, I would look over there and you would know I was talking about what I'm looking at over there. But you have no idea what I'm looking at over there. 
now. And so there's really abnormal interactions when we're online, which actually automatically tell us our brain, this person's not listening to me or this person's not actually taking any notice of me because they're looking in different directions and they're not looking um, actually at me or, or they're all staring at me, which is also an aggressive move from everyone on the screen, which makes our brain automatically go into fight or flight response. So there's a whole bunch of reasons why online and those social media and everything else doesn't work for us as the human species and causes us to be depressed and anxious when we're online and especially afterwards. So that's why we need to hang out with people in real life and get rid of the phones because we know that just hanging out with someone in real life, just sitting down and chatting to someone is better for your mental health than any current drug on the market. So there's no pharmaceutical that is good as spending time and sitting with someone on a regular basis who you trust face-to-face and just chatting to them. Also, sitting down face-to-face and chatting with someone can increase your lifespan by 10 to 15 years. So if you have someone you trust that you sit down with and chat, you actually can increase your lifespan by up to 10 to 15 years. You can decrease the likelihood of having Alzheimer's disease and dementia. There's a huge amount of benefits to actually sitting with someone and not looking at your phone. Um, that we, we really need to start realising, right? We've got this, you know, everyone's talking about these issues with mental health and these issues with loneliness and the issues with behavioural problems in schools and everything. And it's like, well, get rid of the, I won't say a naughty word, but, you know, get rid of the phone. Feel right? free to say as many naughty words as you want. But no, I, I, get, I get what you're saying, you know, these online interactions, uh, especially I think, you know, what you said about Zoom and where you look, it's like, okay, I can look right at, you know, my camera on my computer, but that feels awkward because I'm not looking at you. So it's like when I'm talking, I'm looking at you and, you know, I've talked about before, but as, you know, the show has changed from going from in-person conversations to, you know, going through the pandemic, having to do more remote conversations, you know, obviously I wouldn't be able to connect with you if this was in person. I mean, you're not going to fly to Minnesota. I'm not flying to Australia. But, you know, there's still, I think, importance on having, even though I don't use the video, on having the video up and being able to see each other's faces. I know you've talked about um, in one of your previous articles, uh, you shared the interesting point about a year old infant of those if their parents or their caregivers are frequently engaged in their smartphone, the 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 one year old child tends to exhibit diminished abilities in perceiving facial expressions because so much you know of human connection is understanding you know, the facial expression, seeing the face, actually understanding, you know, I'm a sarcastic person. So sarcasm doesn't work when you can't see my face, when you can't hear the tone, you know, I've had some very awkward text exchanges, Mark, <laughs> just going to say that. But I do think there is still importance. And obviously, yeah, having that connection, because I think there is something when we talk about like the mental health and the reasons why we're so focused on our phones is when you're on your phone, when you're online, when you're terminally online, you can be anyone you want to be. That's not the same thing as in person. You have to be you. And I think a lot of people really struggle with being themselves. And so it's a lot easier to be someone that you're not. You know, there's the latest story about the catfish story around the Stranger Things actor, Dacry Montgomery, where, you know, this woman paid $10,000 to who she thought was this actor from Stranger Things. Turns out, obviously, it was a catfish. What you're saying is very true. We need to kind of put down the phones or at least find different ways of connecting with one another that's not in a space where we can be whoever we want to be because real connection comes from being real with each other. Yeah, absolutely. And and you've also the, the you know the other aspect to that is 
we don't know who we're talking to. We never know who that person is mm-hmm. online or whatever, unless you know them in real life. So they could be anyone, right? It could be some, you know, a 90-year-old guy in the US pretending to be a 14-year-old girl in Vietnam, for God's sake. We, we really don't know who those individuals are unless we know them mm-hmm. in real life, unless we can say, hey, I saw you the other day. Oh, yeah, you did, blah, 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 right? And and that's otherwise we don't know who it is. Who It could be anybody and it could be someone yes. with really, really, as the catfishing shows, with someone with pretty sinister um, um, intentions in some cases, right, um, to make a lot of money or to do other awful things. That I work with a lot of schools where, you know, teenagers uh, and, and younger than teenagers um, are going through awful legal issues because of um, sexting and and um, people manipulating them into putting stuff online that they didn't want to put online and so on. And then you've got problems with pedophilia because if you're putting stuff online and you're actually underage, um, there's a whole bunch of issues around. Yeah. So we need to be yeah, much more careful with the phones and much more aware of the fact that they're a great tool. Um, they're a great opportunity to do things like we're doing when you're in a different country. But if you can meet up with someone, meet up with them and, and put your phone away when you're actually meeting up with them because it's so much more beneficial for you and for them and for all the happy neurotransmitters you get um, and for your cardiovascular system so you'll live longer and you'll know who the person is. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I obviously I'm 100% there with you. And I, one of the things I really liked that you shared was you talked about like the use of Google Maps and how, you know, we're just following this line. We're not actually experiencing where we're going, how we're getting there, the journey to get there, even, you know, trying to find like a place to eat. It's like, all right, we're going straight on Google Maps. We're trying to find like high rated restaurants, but then there's potential to lose a good place because, you know, hole in the wall restaurant, because, you know, it might not be on Google Maps or, you know, it might not have the highest rating on Google Maps. You also mentioned, I know, like the London taxi drivers having to remember all the routes and understanding and having a deep connection with their city because they know. But if we're constantly, you know, driving to point A to point B using a phone, we don't build that connection with our community that you saw before we had like Google Maps and um, MapQuest and printing off directions and, you know, having to get the physical book out, having to ask directions at a gas station. You know, it's kind of taking away the advancement of technology is taking away all these actual chances to connect with people in person. Yeah. And and it's taken away the chance for us to help someone else, right? When you ask someone for directions, They've A, got to activate their own hippocampus and mm. parahippocampus and all the rest of it to actually do that, which is great for your brain because it's working your brain. But they also get a whole bunch of endorphins which are released because they're actually helping someone, which makes them feel really happy and pleased about themselves. And so you're, you're, you're losing the opp- all these opportunities to actually help people out and make them feel better about themselves, which is really sad that we're all walking around <laughs> in our own little worlds as zombies and not making each other happy, which is what we've evolved to actually do. But but the really sad thing is, like they've shown, um, there's been a few studies in the in the US actually where they've given college students when they first arrive at college either a map, a proper map, or a Google map, you know, a Wayfinder app, and they've asked them to use one or the other for six months, and then they've looked at how they're um, tracking after the six months. And the kids who are, the, shouldn't call them kids, the teenagers um, who have the the Wayfinder app, who are doing it online, have less connection to the to the college, um, have less friends at the college, don't know their way around the college as well, 
but also, again, have, have uh, lower marks in school because they're not remembering their lectures as well because of the fact that they're using the map. So when we actually um, move around the world, um, we lay down the map of how we got there in our Parapic Ample Place area, but then everything we do when we actually get there is then linked to that area because the hippocampus is right next to the Parapic Ample. So those things are linked to each other. But if you don't link lay down how you got there, then you don't lay down the information about what you do when you get there. So therefore you lose the, the information about what you do when you get there as well. Um, so these students are using these maps to get to their classes and then they're not actually remembering what they actually do in the class when they actually get there, as well as the students who actually use a map. So there's some big ramifications for this, yeah. So if, you, if, you, if you're going to the movies, um, and you use a Wayfinder app, you're going to remember less about the movie than if you don't use a Wayfinder app or, or you go out on a date with someone, you remember less about Interesting. Them. I'll, have to, <laughs> I'll have to think about that. The next time I go out on a date with my girlfriend, I'll be like, I don't remember anything about you because I use Google Maps. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Who are you again? <laughs> you really? Or are you a 70-year-old man from Minnesota? <laughs> exactly. Uh, I would like to welcome to the show Dr. Mark Williams. Dr. Williams has guided thousands, including students, teachers, and corporate pioneers in optimizing brain performance and health. Authoring well over 70 scientific articles and using 25 years of research, his latest work, The Connected Species, a number one bestseller, explores the interaction between the evolution of our brain and its influence on our world. Mark, welcome to Water Cooler Talk. Thank you for having me, Adam. It's great to be here. Uh, so reading a bit of your book here and there, a topic that I think we could have multi, multi-hour conversations around is the realm of the subconscious mind. You know, I, I truly do believe it's one of the most fascinating studies of humanity. You know, the fact that our actions and choices can be influenced and shaped by instantaneous decisions, you know, that kind of lurk beyond our conscious awareness is like... I mean, I'll say it, it's fucking mind-boggling how cool it is. And it brings me to a story you shared from your past growing up about witnessing a kid being bullied due to merely having, you know, a different accent than the bullies. And then connecting that to a quote from the book, we need to become more aware of the strong influence our unconscious brain has on our behavior and how those processes may be negatively affecting us and how seemingly minor differences can really become fire starters for such negative experiences and human connection. What is it about the fear of, you know, not being in the in-group that makes us contradict our own values and beliefs? Oh, that's a great question. And as you said, we could go on for hours and hours about that one. But um, it's, um, <laughs> we, 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 we've evolved. I mean, as I talk about in the book, you know, the connected species, we, we are the connected species because we're more connected than any other species on Earth. And, and we had to become connected because we're, we're really not very strong compared to a lot of other species that are out there. And mm -hmm. we don't have the biggest brain of all the animals out there, even though we seem to think we do. Um, and we're not the fastest, so we couldn't run away from things very well because we're pretty slow compared to a lot of animals. So we needed a way of actually surviving and becoming the alpha species that we did. And we did that because of connection, because we actually have this amazing ability to connect with each other and work with each other and collaborate and, and, and keep each other safe and also you know collect food and do all those things which we've and now 
we continue to do that. And and we are the only species that actually collaborates across groups. So bees, for example, have their beautiful hives and they have amazing networks and hundreds of thousands of bees within one of those little networks. But one beehive will never turn around to another beehive and say, hey, there's some flowers over there that we didn't pollinate so you guys can have it today. Or we've got extra honey so you can have some and then you can give us some back next time. You've got extra honey, right? We're the only species that does that, which is pretty amazing. But to enable us to do that, to enable us to be so connected and enable us to, to work together and collaborate, we, we basically created this amazing brain. And our brain is as big as it is to, for that reason, just to collaborate, just to actually socialise, to be connected to people. Our brain created this amazing brain that is able to identify who's in our group and who we can trust and who isn't in our group and who we can't trust. And that's all done automatically. That's done beyond our conscious recognition. And so that's why we need to be really careful about it because it happens automatically. And up until the last 100, well, not even 100 years, up until the last 50 years, we were living in small groups, right? We, we were living in villages and stuff and even big towns and big cities like London and New York weren't really that big compared to what we've got now. And, and now we've, we've got huge numbers of people all living together from all over the world. And so um, we need to be much more aware of how our unconscious brain determines who is in our group and who's not in our group. And and that is biased by what we hear and what we know and what we understand and what we've experienced in the past and what we've been told and what the media is betraying and all these things all impact our unconscious perception of the people around us, mm -hmm. as well as the faces that we see regularly, as well as the people we interact with regularly. And so we need to be yeah, more aware of that. And the, the other thing that's impacting it is is we're all busy, right? We've all got this crazy situation where we all think we're all busy and we're all getting shit done, and we're not. We're less productive today than we've ever been, yet we all feel more busy today than we've ever been because we're not actually doing things productively. We're just doing it in a busy way. And so we're not slowing down to actually realise what's actually happening to us in a physiological way. And so we need to, A, slow down so that we're not just reacting to everything that's happening, which is what's happening with a lot of people. And B, we need to, to well, part of that is when you slow down, you can then be more aware of how your body is reacting to your environment. And so therefore you can react to that and you can slow that down and you can, yeah respond to that in an appropriate way is that a case of like we're reacting that way because i mean obviously as humans we're social animals and we're supposed to be social with one another but are we supposed to be on this level of social connection as fast as it has become i mean going back to obviously the phones i mean the fact that you know within 20 30 years we were connected to the entire world is that just a case of we weren't ready for it or we were never supposed to be this connected and this big of groups. It was always supposed to be like smaller, medium-sized groups. Um, that's a hard one to answer. So I think one of the problems is we're actually not connected <laughs> on the devices in a way that our brains have evolved to connect, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's that's one of the biggest issues because all that stuff that we talked about before, when you, when you connect 
face to face and you get all that empathy and everything else actually happening because you're face to face and you're reading the body language, you're reading the facial expressions, you're reading how the person's reacting, you get the prosody of the voice. All those things are really important when we're actually connecting. When we connect online, we don't get any of that. And that's why we've got all this bullying going on and cyberbullying and people actually, you know, being nasty to each other and everything else because they're not getting the physiological response in response to what they're actually doing because they'll do that and they don't actually get the person having a sad face and feeling, you know, awful about it. And so they don't actually then feel sad themselves because they've made this person feel sad. So that's one of the big problems is we're not actually connected properly. <laughs> we're, mm-hmm. we're sort of connected in a really um, abnormal way, right? It's, it's a way that actually doesn't give us all the information that we've evolved to use in those situations. So therefore, we react inappropriately when we're in those situations. Um, and, and in actual fact, we have access to far less information now than we did 10 years ago because we're online, um, because the algorithms that run in the background bias the information we get. So therefore, we get less information than we've ever had before. So we don't actually have more connections we have less connections and and they're more biased so that's also causing a problem right because um i did a little study a little while ago um which i haven't published yet but i looked at people's facebook and um twitter accounts and and if you do that when i did that i found that most people's um connections and the ones that they were connected to the be- the most and they were actually looking at the most were of the same race as themselves. Okay, like among their friends or followers. Amongst their friends and followers and all these things. You actually have a bias towards having people who are like you, um, which also causes your in-group to become more narrow rather than bigger, right? And what we need to do, whereas then they leave their house and all of a sudden there's people from everywhere. And what they're seeing all the time is just people from their their really narrow in-group. And so then their brain responds in a negative way because all of a sudden there's all these other people around them. So we we really need to either get rid of the algorithms uh, uh, so that we are actually interacting with lots of people like what's out in the real world, or we need to stop looking at people online um, and start actually looking at people in the real world. Because our brains actually, uh, one of the amazing things is is we have a... um, face template and the face template is what holds all of our our, um, memory of all the people we know and and that's an average of all the faces we see so the faces that we see regularly influence that face template more and so we know that if if you're only seeing you know a particular race all the time then your face template is really really narrow so anything that deviates from that will set off your fight or flight response which means your heart races start races and all these things which makes you feel as though you're anxious and nervous and all the rest of it whereas if you see lots and lots of different faces from lots and lots of different races all the time then your face template is very very wide and so therefore you don't get that normal physiological fight or flight response when you see someone from a different race and so on. So we need to change that. We need to make that more wide. And it's actually becoming more narrow because of the fact that we're online all the time and and the people we're seeing all the time are the people who are online. And those people are all connected to us via these algorithms, which bias the people we're actually connected with. How do we go about changing that? Because, you know, yeah, it's easy to say, you know, put down your phones, have these conversations in person, but now you have, you know, now over 8 billion people, but you're constantly fighting this, getting into addiction, you're constantly fighting this, you know, I'm going after the immediate 
the immediate reward rather than thinking about the long-term consequences. Example, like you see somebody being bullied and you're like, well, shoot, if I go over there and interact, I'm going to get beat up. Like, I don't want to do that. But now I'm thinking, you know, once I leave that situation, I'm thinking, oh, I should have done something. And so, you know, it, it makes sense that you want that immediate reward. And I think that does, you know, now I'm saying that, I think that does play into kind of how social media companies have designed their algorithm. It's like, hey, we're going to give you the immediate award, uh, reward. Don't worry about the long-term consequences of what it means to constantly be getting this good job. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like uh, Trent Harris, uh, he, he said in his book um, that, when he was working, he, he worked at Facebook for a number of years in the early days, and he he set up on Facebook a little uh, button that you could press, um, and basically it would say it would send out a little message to everybody who was in your area, who who you were connected with, and who was close to you, and say, "Hey, oh, I've got nothing to do right now, and I want to hang out with people. Let's hang out, right? A really social thing to do on social media app." Mm-hmm. Um, and they took it off straight away because they said, "No, we don't want that because if we have that, more people will actually meet up face to face and won't be on." their devices, right? And so they don't, <laughs> and they took it off straight away. We don't want to be social. Yeah. Um, that's not what social media is about. We want you to be social on our app. Yeah, exactly. We want you to do it the way we want you to do it. So we make a lot of money um, and you actually suffer because of it. And so when you're on the apps, you're right. What you're getting is that dopamine hit, which is the addiction, and, and it makes you feel happy for a real short period of time and then goes away. And it's exactly the same hit you get from gambling. It's exactly the same hit you get from gaming. It's exactly the same hit you get from eating fast food or eating sugar or uh, eat, drinking alcohol. It's exactly the same, right? And, and so it is just that hit, but it's not good for us in the long term. It's okay occasionally, but we can't if we, we we can't sustain ourselves on that. Like we can't sustain ourselves on pure alcohol all the time or sustain ourselves on fast food all the time because it's not healthy for us and, and it decreases our lifespan. And so does, you know, not socializing, real socializing. So we need to move beyond that. And like I said, I d I don't understand why governments allow it to happen because it, we know it's having a negative impact on people. It's actually increasing mental health issues. It's decreasing our intelligence. We we need to make changes and there are changes being made. There's a lot of companies um well China's now made it illegal, right? For you to give for for a teenager to use a smartphone for more than two hours during the day, um, and they've got a lot of other you know, and kids aren't allowed to have smartphones and so on. So there are changes being made here in Australia. We've banned smartphones from schools, so no school is allowed. The kids aren't allowed to have smartphones in schools because we know that giving them that break of six hours enables their brain to develop properly, and so that they can then control it better when they're later on. Um, and New Zealand is now doing the same. Mm-hmm. So there are changes being made, but I think we need to make changes to protect our kids and protect our teenagers and protect ourselves, right? I mean, the, 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 these multinational tech companies are making billions and billions of dollars out of our suffering, and that's not right. We need to change <laughs> that, right? We need to actually – and there's easy ways to do it. Yeah. You get the likes and you improve things out of, out of sight. You get rid of the algorithms, you can improve things out of sight. Why do we allow them to do these things when we know they are so you know, Mark, I think it, it comes down to the, you know, the old journalism saying, follow the money and you'll find the answer. I think there's a lot of, obviously, like you're saying, there's a lot of money being made through this and people are going to say, I'm on my fifth yacht. Why, why am I going to stop doing this? I'm living life great. I don't care about the rest of the world. But I did like you, I think you described it, um, 
having friends online versus having friends in person. It's like fast food versus home cooked meals. Like you were saying, it's like, you know, every once in a while, it's okay to get fast food. But if you're constantly living on fast food, not only does that have, you know, very severe health, you know, negative uh, effects, but also you're not having that connection. Obviously, you know, we've talked a lot about the importance of cooking and having, you know, cooked meals and sharing connection across meals. But yeah, I liked how you kind of described that of the fast food versus the home cooked and the importance of having that healthy interaction, healthy meals, healthy food. It's the same exact thing. I thought that was a perfect way to describe it. Yeah, we've got it. We, I mean, it's, it's an amazing technology, right? And for these smartphones, like, who would have thought 50 years ago that we'd have these incredible computers in our back pockets that 50 years ago would have taken up a room, right? That's incredible that we've caught that. But we need to start using it for good rather than evil, right? It's, it's like it could be a, a huge jump in our in our ability to do stuff and be productive and do all these things but it's it's causing the opposite effect and so we we need to go hang on let's use it for for good let's do something good with this rather than doing what we're currently doing which is making a whole bunch of tech billionaires more money so that they can build rockets and fly around right i mean that's <laughs> basically what we're doing which is just crazy 100 um, percent agree so it's, uh, it's good for all of us yeah let's make it good for all of us let's let's change it so it's good for all of us and and there's nothing wrong with the actual technology it's just the manipulation that's going on in the background mm-hmm. before we move on myself and water cooler talk have embarked upon a mission to give back to various parts of the community and those who have helped build our show to where it stands today for each new episode of the podcast, the guests will bring with them a charity of their choice to represent. On the day of their episode going live, Water Cooler Talk will give a donation to that charity in honor of the guest, as well as a global platform to spread a message of love, hope, and togetherness. And we invite you, listening to this episode, to join in to help spread that message to your own personal audience. Mark, your charity of choice for today's episode is the Kokoda Challenge. Uh, could you share with us the significance of their work and what's learned along the punishing 96-kilometer, about 60 miles of hill and bushwalk yeah so the, they um run programs where they take people to uh the kokoda trail which is in papua new guinea um and it was a, an awful trail that the um, japanese um took prisoner of, prisoners of war um australian mainly australian um personnel on this walk and thousands of hundreds of thousands of people died um on this trek through papua new guinea they now take people on that trek for multiple different reasons, but a, a lot of it's uh, the programs they run um, are for teenagers who who have who have been in and out of um, juvenile detention or have um, drug issues or you know kids who are suffering, and and they often take them with police officers. So they'll both go on this walk together, um, which is an extremely grueling walk uh, where you're camping and you're trying to get up these crazy hills and all the rest of it. And and there's been multiple kids that have now become police officers as a result of the fact that they spent this time with these police officers actually doing this and having to rely on each other to survive, right? Which is amazing. And, and there's some amazing stories that have come out of that process of, of taking these teenagers and, and A, training them to begin with because you've got to train for quite a period um, before you actually yeah. go over there, <laughs> um, which is a lot of work as well and, and gets them actually, you know, interacting with each other and interacting with the police officers, but then actually going over there and doing it and achieving, you know, getting up some of these slippery <laughs> tracks and mountains and all the rest of it over that seven days. Um yeah, it causes huge changes in these in these kids or teens, which is amazing. Um, and then and then more recently, they've started um, a digital detox program, which is free for um, 
younger kids and that's just a camp here in Australia where they actually take the kids and they have no digital devices um, for a week. These are kids that you know usually have addictions like severe addictions and aren't going to school and aren't leaving their bedrooms and so on um, and for free for a week and um, they run a whole bunch of programs both um, with psychologists and also around um, you know climbing trees and, and doing rope work and camping out overnight and all those sorts of things and it's a fantastic program that's really needed um, but they, they don't have enough funding to actually run it enough to actually get rid of their huge waiting list that they've got of kids yeah. go on this program. So, yeah, that's why I, I think it's a, it's a great way of actually uh, helping teens and, and kids now um, get better connections and, and change their lives. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing them on the, the podcast. I, I watched a few videos and I was like, all right, man, they, yeah, this is something cool. This is something cool. Just, you know, just <laughs> getting out and, you know, I think, I mean, I was even thinking like watching these videos, like I grew up going to like summer camps and there's just such an importance of maybe this is not the best way to describe it, but there's an importance on being bored and, you know, not having constant, you know, things in your face or not having like taking the time to figure out, especially like with younger children, I'll say, um, obviously, I don't think younger children are doing this 96 kilometer walk, um, <laughs> but being bored and finding connections outside of, you know, fubbing each other. <laughs> that sounds so dirty out of context. <laughs> but, you know, doing something like this and, you know, talking and communicating and, you know, figuring out what to do to spend, you know, the time and the hours and the minutes. And man, life is a lot funner when, you know, you're around friends and you're doing things. And before you know it, it's the next day. And I think there's so much importance in disconnecting and having that digital detox and actually being bored and figuring out how to uh, entertain yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, boredom is the catalyst for innovation and creativity, right? I mean, boredom is what actually creates that. If you're not bored, then you're not going to be creative or, or innovative, right? Because you're not bored because you're actually doing stuff all the time. And that's the biggest problem with our society at the moment where is we're all busy, right, all the time. So we're never bored enough to actually be innovative and creative. creative. But I love it. I love it with my, when my kids are Aboard because I'm like, so hey, what are we gonna do? <laughs> it's like, come up mm -hmm. with something. Let's let's think of something. Yeah, let's have some fun. Yeah. Well, all right, Mark, are you ready to get into our final news story of the episode today? Let's do it. All right, Mark. So this story finds us from AP News, February eighth, twenty twenty one. Turkish man strikes up thirty seven year friendship with a swan. For decades, an unusual friendship has persisted between a man and a swan. 63-year-old Recep Mirzin came across Girp, a female swan in the western Adirna province of Turkey. While in a shortcut, Mirzin spotted the injured swan and without hesitation took her under his wing, safeguarding her from predators and ensuring her recovery. Since that moment, Girp has made her home on Mirzin's farm, where she has resided for the past 37 years. Mirzin states, Since I love animals, I said to myself that, I should take her home instead of leaving her as prey to the foxes. We got used to each other. We never separated. The name Garib, which translates to bizarre, is also used to describe individuals who may be down on their luck. Once her injuries healed, Garib appeared at ease under Mirzin's care, even befriending the local cats and dogs of the area. As a widower with no children, Mirzin shares that Garib has remained steadfastly devoted to him and is considered an adopted child. According to the UK Swan Sanctuary, living with Mersian is beneficial for Gurup. The average lifespan for a swan in the wild is 12 years, and in protected environments can be up to 30 years. Uh, listeners at home, I was not able to find any updates on uh, if this is still going, but 
It's towards the end of the life there, Mark, for a swan in uh, protected environments. Just saying. But maybe friendship has made her a super swan. Uh, <laughs> but anyways, Mark, it's kind of become a, a major theme for the season of the podcast. But this idea of the impact of loneliness on our existence. And I do believe it's a, a shared consciousness following, obviously, the pandemic um, and being isolated through that. But how does the lack of connection, and like we see in the story, it doesn't need to be human, but how does our lack of connection with humans, with animals, with plants, with you know whatever it may be, how does that alter our brain? <laughs> great, great question. So our, our brains are plastic, you know, they're always changing. We, we used to think that we got to our adults and our brains were set and then we basically just slowly atrophied after that. But we now know <laughs> that it's not true and our brains constantly change, thank God, because yeah, I'm a bit old now. Um, it'd be pretty sad <laughs> if I was at the end of it all. You need a um, swan to get you back in there. I do. I've got a wonderful dog that keeps me, keeps me sane. <laughs> um, our brains, yeah, are constantly changing. And so um, what we we do is is when we're in a particular environment, um, our brains will change based on that environment or adapt to that environment. So we make it feel as though it's normal. With COVID, you know, you were mentioning COVID, when we went through those lockdowns and all the rest of it, depending on where you were, and we were told to socially isolate, we, we did that. Many of us did the right thing and did that and stayed in our houses. But the problem is our brains then adapted to that environment and sort of said this is became normal. So this new environment where I don't have many people around me is normal. And so then when they turned around and said, okay, everyone start socialising again, it's okay, we're all safe. Um, when those a lot of those people then went out into the normal situation, their brains then reacted as though it wasn't normal. So mm -hmm. because they'd adapted to this new environment, and that's why social anxiety and depression went through the roof after the lockdowns rather than during the lockdowns because they'd adapted to this new not many people around and then people are around and their brain then hits this fight or flight response associated with that. But the really problematic thing is when you are lonely, when you don't have people around, even though their brains have adapted and said this is normal, it's not normal and our brains have actually evolved for us to communicate. So the best thing you can do for your brain and the thing that actually activates more of your brain and therefore keeps your brain healthy is to communicate with each other, to actually spend time socialising with people, which is why it actually increases our lifespan by 10 to 15 years. And it actually is really good for our cardiovascular system because when you're by yourself, you actually are more stressed because of the fact that we don't have people there to protect us because we've evolved for millions of years to actually feel safe when we've got a whole bunch of people around us because that's the way we always were. So mm -hmm. you're sitting around a fire at night or you're sitting in a cave at night or within your clan and so on. And so our brains automatically say, this is normal when there's lots of people around and I'm safe so I can relax. If you're by yourself all the time, your brain is always on heightened alert and your body is always on heightened alert. So you actually have cardiovascular problems associated with that. You're more likely to have a heart attack if you actually don't have people around you regularly to actually calm you down and make you feel better mm. about life. Yeah. Um, so there's a whole bunch of things. And we can actually, loneliness actually causes, so can, can cause psychosis. So it can actually be that detrimental to your brain that you actually go through psychosis psychotic episodes if you're actually lonely, which is why isolation in, in is used in prisons as, you know, the most severe of tortures, right, is to actually socially to isolate people, to put them in solitary confinement. And we've, we've made that, that's Geneva Convention actually makes that illegal because it is such a severe 
torture to put people in, in, in solitary confinement um, because it does cause psychosis and it does cause all these other both brain issues but also body issues that you actually, you know, it will kill you much earlier if you're constantly alone. And, and which, which is why I get so frustrated and I find it really weird, right? When I was a kid, if your parents sent you to your room, it was the worst thing that could ever happen to you, right? Because it was, you were being socially isolated and you go nuts. Um, whereas now teenagers and kids are spending most of their days in their rooms and parents talking about the fact that they have trouble getting their kids out of their rooms and their yeah. kids to go. And that's so, so sad. And it's so bad for both their brains and their bodies because of that socialization. Because you're not getting the normal response, the, the socialization that you need. Um, and you are lonely when you're in that situation. And these kids that I've seen and worked with who are in that, you know, they're, they're miserable, really miserable. Mm-hmm. And so we need to change that and we need to get kids out of their rooms. Just, I mean, just nobody should have a device in their room, right? You should get rid of all the devices from the room and not allow kids to have the devices in the room. And that can help that a lot because then they don't get into that. Their brains don't adapt to that situation, so therefore they don't end up feeling as though that's normal when it's not normal and it's not actually healthy for them. Is there like a, like speaking about like the brain plasticity, is there, so how do I frame this? Are we like such social creatures that when we have that socializing taken away, it immediately impacts our brain or does it take some time? Because, you know, looking at something like COVID where, you know, we did have the isolation, as you said, coming back, we felt even more isolated, but that was only like two, three years. Does it, are we really that much of a social creature that even that small amount of time can dramatically change? Or, I mean, even going to kind of your example with, um, you know, being thrown into a cell and isolated in that, like, is it just different people have different, you know, mental, quote unquote, mental toughness? I don't know if that's right, the word, or we're just completely changing our brain because we're meant to be social and it doesn't take much to change those kind of connections that we need, if that makes sense at all. Yeah, no, that's, yeah, exactly. So, so this, it's a bit of a yes and a no answer. <laughs> um, so yes, our brains adapt really quickly. Okay. But the adaptation can come back fairly quickly as well. So I always talk, when, when I talk at schools, primary schools especially, I talk about, you know, when you go to the uh, beach on, on a really hot day and you go into the water, uh, the water feels cold, right? Whereas if you go to the beach on a really cold day, you go the next day and it's a really cold day and you go into the water, the water feels warmer. But the water hasn't changed temperature because the ocean doesn't change temperature that much, especially from one day to the next. That's because your brain is adapted to your current environment. So, you know, on a warm day, your brain is adapted so you don't feel as warm um, because it's a warm day. But then you go into the water and it feels cold because relative to the way your brain's adapted. And so we have those adaptions that happen quickly, quite quickly um, and, and can be more sustaining. And those adaptions then over time cause brain changes if that's sustained for long enough. So the adaptation happens really quickly, which is what happened. We will happen over a day or two, you know, of being isolated. But any more than, you know, a couple of weeks and you're going to start getting actual brain changes, so actual structural changes that will happen. And so COVID, when we had that couple of years, would have caused structural changes as well as those, just the adaptation changes as well. Yeah, there are big differences between individuals because some individuals have more capacity than other individuals. There's a lot of research now showing that those who are who have less capacity, their brains aren't as healthy, 
are more likely to get things like Alzheimer's disease or more likely to fall prey to psychosis and these things when they're isolated and when they're lonely. So our brain has the ability to, that's kind of what I was getting to, like our brain has the ability, like if we, you know, if we fuck up our brain, we have the ability to unfuck up our brain kind of in the sense of obviously damage is a different thing, but absolutely. you can. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because, you know, I know I was reading about obviously getting to this story, but the impact of friendships on the brain during different stages of your life. And, you know, I was reading about the teenage years and how friendship activates the ventral striatum. Is that the right word? The reward center in our brain and how important that is. Striatum. Yep especially yeah. younger in life, having those connections, going back to obviously what you were saying about, you know, the one-year-old and the parents always on the phone and not having the facial expressions. Is that stuff that you can change later in life? Or is that kind of if you have those developments early in life in those development years? Because I know there's always this thing like the, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, please on this, but like the brain stops developing around like 25. Is that just BS? Yeah, so uh, yes, again, it's a yes and no answer. So we used to think that there was a guy called Piaget who came up with these critical periods, and and the theory was that you'd go through these critical periods as you're developing through your te- for, for your childhood and your teen years, and if you don't make those critical periods, then it's sort of locked and and that's it, and it doesn't change after that. We know that's all bullshit now. Um, so all the research shows we don't go through any of those critical periods and you can develop these abilities at any stage. What what does happen is our brain changes over the first 25 years. So like our prefrontal cortex isn't fully developed until we get to 25 years of age. Um, and so that is true. So, okay. so we get to that. But you can still change it after that. It's still plastic after that and anything can actually change. So these kids who miss out during those early years, it's going to be harder because their brain's not still developing when they're adults, um, but they can still develop those abilities later on if they wish to. Mm-hmm. It's just going to be a lot more work because it's more, it's more malleable during that first 25 years than it is later on. Um, so it's easier to do it, but you can still do it at any stage. Yeah, no, that's interesting because I know you talk a lot about the importance of, you know, the social brain on our survival. And in your book, you have, you know, what we talk about, like a little like a puppet on a string. We're controlled by the mood of the people around us. And, you know, in your work, you share and teach about, like I was saying, the importance of the social brain on our survival and the importance of understanding and regulating one's own emotion. And can you share why the importance behind that and why it kind of ties into how we uh, interact with one another? Yeah. So we have um, a mirror neuron system. So back in to early 2000s, we discovered this mirror neuron system in our brain, which is it just mirrors what we're actually seeing. So if somebody, uh, as I was saying before, if someone moves into a particular position, then that area of our brain, our brain, when we're looking at that person in that position, activates our motor system so that our, our body will go into that position as well so that we understand how they're feeling. Uh, facial expressions are the best way or the easiest way to to perceive that right because when you see someone smile then your mirror neuron system activates the area of your brain to make your muscles move in that way so then you feel happy associated with them being happy so then you understand oh that person's happy and so that's how we understand what people are doing but also how we mimic each other and why we actually mimic each other so I, i always laugh you know you see a bunch of teenagers 
you know, standing at the mall or whatever, and they'll all be standing in very similar positions, <laughs> right? And they'll all walk the same and all the rest of it. And that's because their mirror system is actually mirroring each other. I was at a big school presentation the other day, and there's whole bunch of boys in the front row and they're all sitting exactly the same way and I was talking about this and as soon as I started talking about it and I said and if you look at the you know you guys are all mates aren't you and they're all like yeah they're best mates and all of a sudden they got into different positions because consciously you can choose to move into different positions but within about five minutes they're all back into the same position because again they were showing that they're all mates right they were showing we're all part of the same group and we're mimicking each other to show that we're all part of the same group so that we get the endorphins associated with being part of that group um, and we we are demonstrating that we're empathizing with each other because we're actually copying each other and so we all do that constantly we don't realize we're doing that constantly but we all do that constantly in our brain so if someone's smiling at you you feel happier yeah. So if you've got people around you who are smiling all the time, you're going to feel happier than you would otherwise. And I think we've all got friends that we hang out with who make us feel happy, right? And mm-hmm. and that's why, because they're happy because they're with us and we're happy because we're with them. And so and then that feeds off each other and so it's contagious and we actually feel happier about it. And our body language, you know, mimics that as well. So we're actually relating to each other. So we're saying we're part of this group and we're all moving in the same way and we're all sitting in the same way and where we get a huge amount of really important neurotransmitters associated with that which is why we need to you know really explain to to, to kids and teens that the kids they hang out with are, are going to influence the way they feel right so we need kids to hang out with kids who are who are happy because then it will make them happy yeah. <laughs> um, and kids who are positive because then it'll make them happy but also us we all need to hang out with positive people because it'll make us more positive but it'll make us happier and, and, and hanging out with people who are feeling crap all the time will make us feel crap all the time and it is a tough thing as you know a friend and you have maybe a friend who is just struggling through life and continually struggles through life and you're like man, you know, you're really bringing down, you know, the the happiness of the group. But at the same time, you know, depending on what that connection is, sometimes it's like, all right, yeah, Steve is down on his luck and he's been down on his luck for a handful of years. But, you know, there's that deep connection. There's that deep friendship. We're willing to work through it. But then in other cases, I, I know I was reading about how like childhood friendships and going through like development with each other, like kind of strengthens 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 that bond and you're more willing to put up with you know sad steve than you know if you just met sad steve like a month or two ago and so i think as you were saying you know the importance of those bonds very early in the development stages of children and actually understanding you know obviously not telling your kids who to be friends with you know because that could lead down a whole rabbit hole of issues um (laughs) but yeah i think what you were saying explaining to them the importance of friendship and why friendship matters and why having good friends matter and why having you know shared respect among friends matter and why having even friendships matter because you don't want to be in a friendship where you're codependent or they're codependent and so I do think that is something good to teach younger people is how to be friends. And, you know, that was something that I do think, I I believe Sesame Street is international, but like something like Sesame Street, that was always about showing that, hey, you can connect with multiple different people. They might not look like you. You know, the fact that, um, oh my gosh, I'm just blanking on the guy in the trash can. But, you know, you can be friends with anybody. You can be friends with whoever it may be. They might look different. They Yeah, there you go. Oscar the Grouch. Uh, You can be friends with Oscar the Grouch, even though Oscar the Grouch is sometimes grouchy. You know, there is importance to having that friendship. And 
you know, that's also the other thing too. It's like, I have a ton of different friend groups, like some friends, all right, I'm going out to get music with, or, you know, I'm going out to try new foods, or I'm just looking to laugh. Like, you know, there are obviously, you know, the Venn diagram of my friend groups, they do interact some bit, but at the same time, you can't always expect your friend groups to be exactly what you need at that time. Because I think that's just unfair to expect someone else to be exactly what you need. And instead, you know, you have to go out and create that if you can't find that within your friendship. Yeah, that's beautiful. And I think we need to realize that we, we are all very different because who, who we are, of course, is determined by our experiences. And all of our experiences are very different. And so our perceptions of the world are very different based on those experiences that we've had over a long period of time. So we, we're never going to find a friendship group that is going to meet all of our needs because all of our needs are different. Everybody has different needs based on their experiences from the past. And so, yeah, we, we are going to need different groups of people who we're going to hang out with at different times, depending on, on what we're into and what we're, we're interested in. But, but I also liked your point earlier, and I hope I didn't suggest that we should get rid of people just because they're feeling down but that we, <laughs> no, we, you know, when people when people are feeling down when, when friends are feeling down we should support yes. them absolutely um i'm just saying that there are people out there that that bring us down yep. regularly and sometimes we need to cut those off um yeah but not not, not just the <laughs> sad board, steve board, get like out of here sad steve <laughs> wife just left him. Yeah. but yeah it is one of those things if it like say it is like a toxic person it's more than fair to get rid of them from your life if their negativity is causing toxicity within the group yeah absolutely and, and same with work right i mean i I do a lot of stuff with with work workplaces and stuff. And we, if your workplace is toxic, get the hell out of it because it's a, it's a lot of what you actually do, uh, right? Mm-hmm. And there are places out there, and there's leaders out there who just don't know what they're doing and are toxic. And we need to we need to all leave those ones so they go broke, so that we can start new ones that are actually more positive and and our brain healthy. Yeah, yeah no, I think because it, it, that's such a good point. It's like you know, especially you're spending so much of your life at work if you're if you're someone who does work, I mean, I know there's some people in the 1% who don't have to work, all right? Um, but if you're in a situation, you know, where you're going, you know, 40 hours a week, right? Kind of the average work hours across the world. You know, if you're spending 40 hours somewhere, the same, you know, as we are talking about sleep, you know, getting devices out of the bedroom, that's where you're spending, you know, a third of your life, you know, you have to start realizing all of these spaces you're putting yourself in and, what kind of relationship you're having with when you're talking about sleep, what kind of relationship are you having with sleep and how is that being impacted by having a device in the bedroom? How is that impacted by, I mean, I've been even watching these feng shui videos about how to properly align your bed. So the, you know, the chi and the energy is going a certain way. Like it's crazy, but it does have an impact. And there's a reason that's been around for thousands of years or, you know, going back to kind of what you're talking about with work. It's like, if you're going to a situation where you don't enjoy it, And I always say that because uh, the average commute time across the world is 45 minutes. And I've always tried to keep my show around 45 minutes because of that. But if you're spending 45 minutes a day driving back and forth to work or you're on the train or, you know, whatever it may be to get to work, you're dealing with rush hour, you're dealing with traffic. Then you go to a place where, you know, you don't necessarily like your coworkers, you don't like your job, you feel like you're not contributing to the world. I know there was that study that just came out about people don't think they're contributing greatly with their jobs to the world. Uh, And then you're coming home and you're bringing all of that negativity to 
your home, your family, you know, your partner, if you go out with your friends, you're bringing that all in. It just doesn't wash away at the door as much as we want to think it does. Yeah, absolutely. It's all it's all affecting our overall who we are, right? And and we've got to remember that our our to- our life is our time, right? Our time on this planet is actually our life. Um, and do you really want to give your life away for something that you're not enjoying and, and isn't good? I, I saw I saw a quote the other day that um, the person who has the most fun is always the winner, right? And, and it's so true. It's, it doesn't really matter whether you're making huge amounts of money or, I mean, as long as you've got enough to survive. But if you're having fun doing whatever you're doing, then that's you're the winner, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's what we should be focusing more on um, and making us all happy by us all being happy because if we're all happy then we're all going to be happy (laughs) it's just going to be contagious yeah well i do kind of want to talk about kind of to wrap up this story kind of like how does sharing and getting into the concept of friendship and you know co-workers that you actually like as we're talking about no sad (laughs) steve's here Uh, how does sharing and working together contribute to our shared humanity you know i mean even thinking about like the advancements of humans through you know sharing tools and knowledge i know you've talked about uh i think it was like a chimpanzee making a stick tool to get ants but then not telling the other chimpanzees that yeah so again it's it's how we've got to where we are um, and why we have the big brain we have is to enable us to collaborate in those ways. And so that's why, you know, work can be so fulfilling if you're working in a place where you feel as though you're contributing and you're making a difference and you're working with people you trust and people you actually like is so fulfilling because that's what we've, we've evolved to do. That's what's enabled us to get to where we are. And that's why those things are really fulfilling for us as humans, which things have changed in the 80s, 70s and 80s. There was all this stuff around around alpha males and the fact that, you know, there was uh, uh, Lord of the Flies book came out yep. and there was all this stuff about, you know, where we're intrinsically evil and we just want to better ourselves and we all want to win and, you know, patriarchy and this um, alpha male crap and all the rest of it. And it's actually not true. None of it's true. All the research now is showing that our drive actually is to collaborate and to help and to be empathic with people and to enjoy. And, and a lot of research now shows that if, if you get someone to do the wrong thing, do think something that's unethical, it actually activates more of their brain because they've got to override mm. our normal thing to actually do the right thing. And it's when we do the right thing that our brain is is under its normal state, which is really easy and it makes it really easy to do it. So we need to realise that, yeah, we're not these evil people that we seem to think we were. <laughs> well, a lot of people still think we were. Um, but back in the 80s and the 70s, 80s, 90s, when you had... Um, what was it? Wall Street. The movie Wall Street came out. Greed is good and all of that. That's not us. That's not who we are as a, a species. Um, as a species, we're actually collaborative. We want to help. We get huge amount of endorphins when we help someone else. We get a huge, you know, huge response in our brains and and and, and in our bodies when we actually help other people and we're involved in work that we like and work that helps and work that does. And, and this is why. I mean, which is. A little frustrating, but why helping professions tend to earn less because people are more like more willing to do it because they get such a, a buzz out of doing oh, it. Whereas yeah. we're more likely to pay people who do shit work, um, the things that aren't much fun, uh, more money. Um, and so what what we really need to do is be rewarding those people who are doing the nice stuff, right? They're doing the caring jobs and all the rest of it. But we don't because we know that they'll – well, we don't know, but obviously they do – 
do it anyway because it's so rewarding for them. But we really should be rewarding them. I mean, they're the ones that, you know, teachers, doctors, nurses, <laughs> um, you know, preschool, uh, all these people, right, uh-huh. should be paid more um, for that caring stuff they do. But they, they'll do it anyway because they get such a big buzz out of it. Yeah, I, you know, really looking at this question and kind of doing some research on it, like I was looking at the moments in history that kind of changed the course of human the future of humans and the future of humanity. And it was, you know, things along the line of the agricultural revolution and sharing, you know, uh, farming practices, the industrial revolution, you know, the Renaissance, you know, even, you know, in modern day kind of space exploration and the International Space Station and all of these big moments of humanity, not just moments of like, oh, the U.S. got to the moon first, but the fact that we're sharing all these things, these are the turning moments of humanity that are making us better. And I think doing it together is the way to go. And it's not, let's focus on how much money we can make and, you know, Wall Street and who cares about the little guy as long as I'm getting mine. Yeah, absolutely. I work with uh, the Institute for Sustainable Leadership, which is a really fascinating institute. And um they're about this idea of honeybee leadership or honeybee companies versus uh, locust companies um, and talk a lot about that and the, the difference between them. And their honeybee companies um, are the ones that look after their workers and the ones that give you know, them as much time off as they need and support them and so on. And these organisations, um, a lot of them actually have been going for hundreds of years and they have people working there that their you know their their um, grandparents worked there and their great grandparents worked there and great grandparents worked there and they all want to work there and so they're all working towards keeping that business sustainable and that business going because of the fact that it is this this organization that everyone's supported and everyone's loved within it and everyone loves working there and so on and these are these are big national multinational companies some of them you know, you're talking BMW and, mm-hmm. and Ducati and these companies that have done this and have done it over hundreds of years because of the fact that, that, they're, that they're honeybee, right, that they're actually looking after everybody and everyone's treated well, um, as opposed to locust organisations who are just looking at shareholder profits um, and, you know, minimising wages and minimising everything that the workers get um, and, and only last for, what is it, average five years or seven years that the company lasts these days? I, mean, I know. It, it, it's quite crazy that if you actually care about your employees and the people around you, that uh, life tends to be better for everyone. Uh, but Mark, thank you for taking the time to uh, share your perspective on some of the strangest and most bizarre news stories the world has to offer in an engaging, productive, and meaningful conversation. Listeners, if you would like to continue to learn more about Mark's work, you can do so by heading to his website, www.drmarkwilliams.com. Once again, www.drmarkwilliams, doctor spelled dr.com. And as always, that link will be included in the description of this episode and on our website, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. So Mark, before we go, I got to ask you about brain hacks, of course, uh, in our current timeline of, you know, trendy brain hacks, especially from social media apps like TikTok. How should individuals discern between scientifically substantiated hacks and, you know, just trends that will, as you say, pass and go? <laughs> um, oh, great question, Adam. I think the easiest way is if, if it's easy, then it's probably not true. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing's easy in this world. That you can just go for Nothing's easy in this world, especially when it comes to the brain. The brain, yeah, it, it takes effort and it takes concentration to do anything worthwhile, right? It takes, yeah, some bit of compassion. But 
yeah, I mean, I, there's so much nonsense out there, especially in relation to the brain and neuroscience. It's, it's, it's just not true. The number one way to keep your brain healthy is to sit down and chat with people. So sit down and chat with people because that is the best way, better than any of those apps out there that are supposedly going to make your brain better. And then the other number one way to actually improve your brain and improve your mental health is just to turn off all your notifications. And that is that is actually, I, I lied, didn't I? That is something easy you can do. Um, and I said it wasn't, wouldn't be easy, but those are the two easiest ways and, and the best ways to actually improve your brain health and to, to make yourself yeah more resilient to mental health issues so. yeah i found actually that um i put my phone into grayscale mode so it's not as interesting to look at so i'm kind of like oh i'll find other interesting things to look at but uh or listening to a podcast called water cooler talk i'll, I'll throw that one in there i know you might not absolutely uh, yeah, <laughs> scientific backed no, up. No, no, listening to, to pod- stuff is good. There you go. Sorry, yeah, I think listening to things is really good because then you're not actually looking at them, so you can actually think and imagine and do all these other things. Yeah, so just listening is actually actually good. Not not as good as reading a book, but. Hey, I, I, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, Mark, we have now reached my favorite part of the episode. I get to hand off an award-nominated podcast to you. Listen to from every corner of the world, from the beaches of Victoria, Australia, to the beaches of Victoria, Minnesota, to successfully close out this wonderful conversation and to tie everything back full circle to our conversation about the Vampire Diaries. Uh, you touched upon it a little bit ago, but can you tie the metaphorical bow on the end of this episode and share with the listeners the important of being present in the moment and expand upon your line each second forms a small piece of the grand tapestry that is our journey shaping our experiences memories and relationships yeah as as i mentioned before i think it's really important to remember that our time is our life and our life is is so so important should be important to us i forget who was said that that um I don't know how many heartbeats I'm going to have, but I'm going to make sure I make the most of every one of them. And so we need to realise that our time is our life and stop wasting it by making tech companies lots of money, right? Because that's basically what you're doing. And something I always ask people is, you know, would you work for four or five hours for somebody for no money so that they can make lots and lots of money, which is what you're doing when you're on a device for four or five hours a day. You're making someone else a huge amount of money and and doing nothing good for yourself. So, yeah, I, I say be aware of what you're doing every day. And I don't mean that in a way you've got to be productive every day. I like to have a snooze in the afternoon um, and having a snooze is actually good for your brain as well. So, you know, have a nap in the afternoon and it's really good for you. But be doing things that are good for you rather than be doing things that are going to make other people money would be my my tip. And, and that is being with people, hang out with people, love people respect people and realise that all the stuff we've got, all the shit we've got is because of people, millions and millions of people all over the world, over many, many generations of collaborating with each other. So we need to love everyone. I like it. That was the right bow. It was the right colour. It was the right design. It was the right (laughs) fold of the bow. Perfectly bowed up this episode here, Mark. But no, thank you very much for, you know, wanting to come on the show, having this conversation. I think the brain is one of obviously the most interesting thing. The fact it's even crazy that my me myself, my brain has to think that the brain is the most interesting thing in the world. Kind of a little egotistical by the brain there. Uh but I think it's so interesting because it's something that 
out of anything in the world, I understand the least. But to have somebody like you on to kind of talk about it and to continue to explore it and to better understand it and how it works, I think is so cool. So uh, very much appreciate you being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me on, Adam. It's been really fun. Listeners, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, the show will be over. Peace. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. <laughs>